Hey everyone, uh, welcome to Sound in Motion. My name is Peter Naughton, and today we'll be talking about uh, none other than Jurassic Park, the 1993 millennial classic directed by Steven Spielberg with original music by John Williams. Uh, I thought this would be a good one to start with because it's a movie that like everyone has seen, and uh, like the music especially is instantly recognizable. Um, I knew the score was popular, but it wasn't really anything that I'd ever thought twice about. And so I was surprised on my most recent rewatch by just how uh, how thoughtful the score is and how it like perfectly functions in the movie on a few different levels. Uh, there's like three things specifically that stuck out to me about the score. So the first thing is uh, it, it helps pace the movie. And I'll talk about this a lot, uh, but the score does a lot of heavy lifting in terms of the building up and the audience anticipation, the mystery, hitting all of these important story beats. It's one of those movies that just sucks you in and you don't even realize it. And that's partly because Spielberg is a master filmmaker, but it's also because John Williams and it's his ability to let the story unfold musically. Uh, the second thing is it helps to establish the tone of the movie. And this is kind of a tough one to talk about, I think, because when you're talking about a movie tone is it's kind of like the genre but it's also it goes a little bit deeper than that like it's shades of a genre so you just pick any random movie like think about how you would describe any random movie like is it a fun movie or is it like a scary movie is it fun scary or is it like disturbing scary right earlier it's a comedy or it's really more like a dark comedy you know what i mean that's so tone is how a movie makes you feel while you're watching it like what kind of mood it will put you in. Uh, Spielberg and Williams, they're at their best, I think when they're working within a very specific type of tone. Uh, and particularly when you look at that stretch of movies they did from like 1975 to 1993. There's, it includes like Jaws, E.T., Close Encounters, Indiana Jones, really kind of unforgettable movies. Uh, among the many things that these movies have in common is their tone because they play to mainstream audiences and they also play to a wide age range. Uh, those movies, they're like the true family films, right? That's kind of a lost genre these days, but uh, they, they nailed it uh, during that stretch of time. But I think this is important because a movie like Jurassic Park needs to play to uh, a wide range of audiences. It can't be too dark or too scary or violent. Um, but on the flip side, you can't make it too silly, or you can't make it like a slapstick comedy. You know, it needs to feel pretty firmly grounded in reality, and all of the science elements of the movie need to at least feel somewhat believable, right? And um, that's why you bring in a composer like John Williams for a project like this. His music just fits perfectly with Spielberg's vision as a director, and they play off of each other so well. That's really kind of how you end up with the tone of this movie. It's partly wonder and awe, partly tense thriller adventure and part sci-fi ethical dilemma and it works so well because they're both masters of their craft and they execute their jobs at such a high level and the third kind of thing that stuck out to me is john williams orchestration and color palette um by now almost everyone has some kind of understanding of what john williams music sounds like you know you think star wars jaws et yada 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 but Jurassic Park, uh, it's a nice little reminder that every once in a while, and especially as he moved on in his career, John Williams, there's a lot of moments where he can really flex uh, his unique color palette. And I guess what I mean by that is like he can find really unique sound combinations. Every once in a while, he can branch out and, and try some different orchestral colors. 
like there are moments in the score when we get like a really haunting choir or we get like the, a moment of unusually lush strings. It's things like that, you know. John Williams is a genius, but at the same time, you always kind of know what you're going to get with him. Like he rarely deviates from a traditional Western orchestra setup. And I don't really blame him. That's kind of his bread and butter. Um, so like it's, it's unlikely that you'll hear long stretches or uh, like a big feature for electronic instruments or any sort of non-Western instrumentation. And those things actually do show up in the score, but they're very subtle and they serve more to create unique colors and it's mood rather than being used for like the big thematic music. But these little moments of unique colors, they, they stand out and they grab your attention and they kind of help the movie from dragging or getting boring or anything like that. Uh, a really good example of uh, that that color palette, that unique color, happens right at the beginning of the movie. Like it's the first thing you hear. You just get these really ominous chords that play over the opening credits. It's just this sort of like rising and falling motion. It's a nice color and it's not something you'd really think of when you think of John Williams, right? You always think of like the big Star Wars fanfare and uh, or like really light, bouncy, fun music. Uh, and this is just like, it's kind of haunting right from the get-go. But it, it also really helps to just crank up the mystery and the anticipation right off the bat. But I, I love this opening scene so much. It's classic Spielberg. You're just teasing the audience with like just a little peek at the dinosaur in the crate. I think about the opening of Jaws, right? It's kind of a, a similar situation. But this scene is really all about creating mystery and anticipation. You know, you get one or two very brief shots of that raptor, but everything else is kind of ambiguous. The score helps set the mood. You don't really get any thematic material yet, but it's a lot of strong statements, some minor chords, but it's very aggressive. This is what's probably best known as John Williams' action music. Like, it's, it's underscoring the terror and the dread of the situation, and that's really all you need. It's a great way to start the movie. It builds your anticipation for the rest of it. Uh, and once you establish this, you can move on to the rest of the story, introducing the characters, etc. It's just a nice little touch at the beginning of the movie, and it just grabs your attention right away. Anyway, uh, the music really kicks into gear, I think, once we're on our way to the island in the helicopter. And this is great. Uh, we start to get a real sense of who our main characters are. Uh, so we have Dr. Alan Grant, the paleontologist, played by Sam Neill. Uh, Dr. Ellie Sattler, the paleobotanist, who's played by Laura Dern. And then <laughs> Ian Malcolm, the rock star mathematician, who's played by Jeff Goldblum. I do want to mention that uh, these three leads, they're, they're so good in these roles. Like, they just fit into them very naturally. You always have a good sense of where these characters' decisions and motivations are coming from, and the actors really know how to execute it. And I always like how unique Spielberg's secondary characters are. Uh, like, you think about the, the lawyer. Like, he's such a, he's such a, like, kind of, uh, like, slimy guy. <laughs> for lack of a better word, he's 
he's just like sleazy, you know. Uh, and then uh, Dennis Nedry, of course, wonderfully played uh, by uh, Wayne Knight Newman from Seinfeld. Uh, he, yeah, I, I'll have more to say about Dennis Nedry, Nedry later, especially how he relates to the score. But for now, I just want to say that I love his character and because he's the type of character that you love to hate. Right. Like there's not enough of those in movies these days, but really what I love about him is he's not like some criminal mastermind. He's not a supervillain. He's just like, he's just a bad person with bad intentions. You know, he's a treacherous character and his, his greedy intentions, it perfectly intersects with the major events of the story and some of the larger thematic points about chaos, uh, and, uh, and trying to control life like this. We also start to get a good idea of what some of the central conflicts will be, like uh, chaos theory, man playing God, John Hammond's childish stubbornness. But anyway, the, the music is great here. It's really playful. And you can really tell when John Williams is doing this type of transition music. It's a lot of uh, short riffs, kind of like his action music. It's these short riffs uh, that they all kind of interact with each other. And whereas his action music is probably more brassy and intense uh, and just kind of dense, this here is very bright colors. You get strings, high woodwinds, trumpets. It's a lot of like higher register instruments. So it's a nice foil to both the kind of action music and also those strong thematic statements that he makes, which we hear uh, in a little bit. But here is more just, it's functioning like wallpaper. It's not distracting. It keeps the pace moving along nicely before the big reveals. It's also just another indication that uh, despite some really thrilling, you know, kind of action moments, the movie itself isn't too dark and it's all about keeping that sense of adventure up. So here we get our first major theme uh, appearances. Uh, as we're approaching the island, this is when the score really kicks into overdrive and, and really starts to become a noticeable component of the movie. So we get, I, I think it's two iconic themes within like maybe five or ten minutes of each other. I think about five minutes. So the first one uh, is what I'll call the adventure theme. But it's not frantic. It's not action music, right? John Williams' action music is, you know, more fragmented. It's a lot of interaction, that kind of thing. This is very, uh, very stately. Uh, it's more triumphant than anything. It's, it's really more about uh, the spirit of adventure. And more importantly, it's about discovery, I think. Like, the island is majestic and the music like perfectly reflects that quality. It's basically a fanfare. I also like that this adventure theme has one of John Williams' uh, fanfare tendencies that you can always kind of pick up on. Like he establishes the main fanfare theme, which is typically very brass heavy and it it's, has like a march-like quality to it. And then you get to the secondary part of the theme and it, it chills out. It becomes a little more legato, a little more smooth. And it primarily features the strings 
uh, they get their kind of secondary melody. And then it finally returns back to the brassy primary theme, maybe a little bit more fuller orchestration. Uh, and this happens in the, the Star Wars, the main theme, and it happens in the Raiders of the Lost Ark theme. Uh, it's really nice that you can kind of tell when he's going into fanfare mode. Um, and a really nice thing that happens too is that once that theme is established, they play it a couple times as they land, they're really absorbing it and they want to get as much mileage out of this moment as possible. Totally understandable. But the nice thing is that once you hear that theme, uh, John Williams like immediately starts to fracture it into the traveling uh, transition music. It's like you know it's the same sort of texture when we were in the helicopter, a little bit lighter, a little more playful. But this time there are fragments of that theme just kind of scattered throughout. So he's already kind of priming you to get used to that. And it's another way that the movie builds anticipation. It's such a, a small thing, but hearing that theme music get fragmented into the traveling music, it really like clues you in on the fact that we're approaching a big moment, which of course we are. Uh, so the, the second theme that we get is what I would call the wonder and awe theme. thing is before we actually get to that full unadorned melody we first get a much more subtle kind of low-key uh, part of that theme uh, and it kind of functions on its own and this is a huge moment in the movie at least for me it is because this is this is the payoff that we've been wanting up until this point Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler first see the Brachiosaurus, and it's a profound, reverential moment for these characters. And I think the theme here really reflects that. Um, it's a very relaxed pace, but it's still stately and proud. It it, it sounds religious, like it kind of reminds me of like a church hymn, you know? And that's fitting because for Grant and Sattler, this is essentially a religious experience for them. Finally, it builds to the full melody, which in the context of the movie is really more about like putting a bow on the scope of it all. And it's, 
it's a beautiful theme. It really is. But it's also, it's kind of corny. It's very sentimental, but I mean, who cares, right? It's, it's fun and it's a special moment, you know, who cares? Yeah, I think partly why it, I don't, I don't want to get too much into it, but I think partly why it comes off as maybe a little more corny is that the theme is surprisingly repetitive for a John Williams, like, melody for one of his themes. Like, even his most memorable melodies, they, they're pretty well-developed. They have a lot of direction. They have a lot of movement. And this is, like, four notes that just kind of keep repeating. Uh, it's not bad. You know, it's just a little unusual for a big, big John Williams theme. So that is just something that stood out to me, you know. But I do think it is important to make a distinction that the the big emotional beat in this first act of the movie, it's not this towering theme, right? It's the quieter, more personal, reverential theme. I know it probably seems like I'm being nitpicky here, and to be fair, I am. But my point is that the John Williams scores are so much more than the big memorable themes. They work because they know how to like push the pace of the movie along, how to pay off these things that we've been building up. And it really keeps you engaged with the story. And then I really like this a lot because following that big moment, the tone like abruptly changes. We get more of this John Williams travel transition music, but this time it's in like more of a minor key and it feels much more like a, a brisk march. And it clues us, the audience, in on the fact that more of the story is unfolding and we're about to get into some uh, interpersonal conflict, mostly revolving around the philosophical debates, which are really great in this movie. Again, it probably doesn't seem like a big deal, but this little bit of transitional music is really important. Uh, it makes the movie so watchable, for lack of a better word. I mean, just generally speaking, it's all these little cues that make it watchable because it keeps you asking what's going to happen next. Like you get this sweeping wonder and awe moment and then it's like this really abrupt tonal change. It makes you wonder why the tonal change and what's coming next, you know. Uh, and so what does come next? It's uh, it, It's some of the most efficient and interesting exposition in a mainstream movie. Um, and I'm talking, of course, about this little uh, cartoon that John Hammond shows them. So they go back to uh, the actual the the building. I, 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 <laughs> this is an element of the movie that I also really like is how kind of, I don't know, doesn't it seem a little undercooked for what a theme park should be? Like, we'll get more into John Hammond's character, but... <laughs> You never really have a sense of like what all this park encompasses. It really feels like it's just a way for John Hammond to bring dinosaurs back. <laughs> but they, they go on this, I guess it's really kind of a ride, but it's a it's like an edutainment ride. Uh, they get this wonderful cartoon that explains how they actually uh, clone the dinosaurs with the uh, the frog DNA filling in the, the genome, whatever. But it's really like... It's really well done. You know, the, the cartoon, it changes things up. And it's fun because you learn information the same way the characters do. Like, they kind of scoff. They show fascination. They laugh a little bit at how silly it is. And you can kind of tell the initial glow is starting to wear off. And all three have some pretty serious ethical concerns. It reminds me of uh, that, that one Harry Potter movie. 
uh, the Deathly Hallows, right? It's kind of a long movie, and you get to the end of it. This is part one, right? You get to the end of that movie, and suddenly they need to do this big exposition dump, and you're just watching it like, oh, God, no. But then they treat you to this really nice little animated segment. Like, it really uh, grabs your attention. The cartoon exposition, I love this. It has some really fantastic music, too. A full DNA strand contains three billion genetic codes. If we look at screens like these once a second for eight hours a day, it'd take two years to look at the entire DNA strand. It's that long. Six It's full of holes. Now that's where our geneticists take over. It sounds like Looney Tunes. It's, it's so cartoony. But it really helps reinforce the character's feelings of like, okay, this is fun, but like you're also not respecting the science, and in doing so, that will have some serious ethical ramifications. The cartoon music, it also kind of underscores just how childish John Hammond's the like whole thought process is. He says he's even saying like they're gonna replace the music with something royal with drums. It's just a subtle way to show that this whole thing is a deeper lifelong fascination that he has. Uh, like the glow never wore off for him. It's he's a billionaire with a child's imagination, and that's so much more terrifying to me than a supervillain, right? Uh, and also, it goes without saying, but Richard Attenborough is so perfect for this role. He really brings the childlike wonder with just a hint of melancholy. Uh, it's a really nice kind of balance that he brings to that role. Um, so anyway, we move along. We're in the lab, and we we see the the, the egg hatching. It's a raptor, a baby raptor, and um, you can usually count on what I would call profound moments in this movie having some kind of music, like important realizations, important life moments, like the birth of this creature. the music for this because it's a little spooky but it's also kind of sweet uh like this is a prehistoric monster essentially but it's also a baby right and so how are you supposed to react to that it's it really like kind of rides that line of like this is kind of terrifying but it's also amazing and sweet and like intimate right the it, it, i think it's a choir but it's very kind of sparse just they're just holding on like it, it's very subtle uh, this really lovely little melody and there's piano in there. There's a lot, a lot of tinkly sounds, a really nice color palette. It's, it's angelic. Um, it, it reminds me of like a, a mobile that you would have over a crib. I don't know. I think those are sounds that you would probably tend to associate with a newborn, right? I do want to point out, too, that it's really worth recognizing that the stretch of the movie has a lot of exposition. But again, Spielberg, like he's such a master at filmmaking. He has such an interesting way of delivering all this exposition that it never feels slow or boring. It's all really interesting. The Lab is a great example of how framing and blocking and just general shot composition keep the energy of the movie up. Because on the one hand, we're processing the information being stated, right? But on the other hand, it, it, the shot, it shows them all huddled around the hatching egg, and it's a really profound, intimate moment. But then you start to notice uh, Ian Malcolm, just, he's starting to become a little more uncomfortable. And he pulls away and he kind of breaks the spell for all of them because he starts asking these sort of ethical questions. 
And of course, it helps that Jeff Goldblum brings so much charisma to the role. Uh, but he just he completely dominates the scene at that point. He's introduced some of the most like critical ethical dilemmas in the movie, and it just immediately grabs our attention. It's A plus filmmaking. Same as in the conference room later on. They're having these philosophical debates. There's some exposition in there, but it just looks so rich, and the actual shot compositions keep it interesting. Okay, so moving right along, uh, eventually we get uh, to the kids. Um, Lex is the girl, and then Timmy is the boy, right? Um, I think they're really good at playing these roles. Uh, they're believable as young children. Uh, with the kids, we get uh, back into the trucks. So they're about to go on this big tour of the park, right? And the music is uh, playful again. It's that uh, John Williams traveling transitional music. It's great, right? You don't want to get too bogged down in the seriousness of it yet because there's a lot that's going to happen later on in the movie. All that stuff in the conference room, in the lab, it just, it just kind of gives a little weight to it. And now we can kind of relax again. We're meeting these new characters. We want to get a sense of how they interact with our main characters. So yeah, you give them some light music, right? And uh, once they actually start moving towards the actual, the, the gates of the tour, you hear uh, some non-Western sounding drums. Uh, again, another instance of him kind of deviating from the traditional orchestra setup, but it's, it's pretty low key. And then you get just a hint of the adventure theme. It just kind of pops in there. It suggests that we're crossing into sort of a, a new, a new part of the the, the, the journey. It's adventurous, but maybe not quite in the same profound experience way that they initially had, it, especially under the weight of the considerations <laughs> that they've just been debating. So uh, right around here, this is when we pick up the pace of the movie and it really starts to turn a corner. All sorts of potential threats are starting to collide. Um, our main characters are on a tour. <laughs> Again, they just immediately get out of the car, but it suggests that the barrier between their kind of safe insulated world and the dinosaurs can be easily breached. Uh, the second threat is that there's a tropical storm headed their way. And then the third one is Dennis Nedry. He's the final piece of the puzzle. So uh, just a little refresher, he is uh, going to collect the dinosaur embryos and sell them to uh, John Hammond's competitor. Uh, but in doing so, he shuts down uh, like all the power, which stops the cars right in front of the T-Rex paddock. And it shuts off all the fences too. <laughs> and this is when the music like really kicks into treachery mode. This is my, I, I associate this little riff with Dennis Nedry specifically, but I, it's more just, it's the treachery theme. And it really like, what it does is it actually reinforces the dread and the instability of the whole situation. It's just, it's more building, it's more building uh, and like more anticipation. It, it gives you almost like a nauseous feeling, like we're heading towards something really bad, which of course we are. And it, the, the treachery riff, it features this constant pulse in the percussion. This is when you get some of those electronic tones, I think it's just, yeah, very subtle. But the percussion is not bombastic, it's just kind of a motor, it's just driving it forward. Like it's 
it's unrelenting, it's inevitable. And then just like these little riffs, it just kind of keeps reprising just bigger and bigger each time. Dennis Nedry, I love how his demise, it almost kind of makes you feel sorry for him. And it's a very, um, it's a very thematic death, like in talking about not being able to account for uh, the forces of nature. Um, he could have never accounted for his car going off the road, being attacked by this cute little baby dinosaur. Isn't, isn't that just the most adorable little puppet? Uh, but I love how it like slowly strips him down to his most basic human needs too. Here he is getting in the car thinking he's going to be loaded and he's just going to be living an easy life. And then five minutes later, he loses his glasses and he's just rationalizing like, I can buy more glasses. Like in the span of minutes, his, his whole life just gets flipped around. <laughs> so moving on, um, at last... At last, we finally come to the moment that we've all been dying for. Uh, this is the, the big T-Rex reveal, the big T-Rex moment. And it makes me so happy that the payoff for an hour's worth of buildup is so satisfying. Uh, the T-Rex scene, this might be my favorite scene in like any movie ever. I'm not kidding. Honestly, very wise decision not to have any score during this scene. Like the first hour was really just, it's just, build up to this moment, all that mystery, and then you could throw in a little wonder and awe, some adventure, and now we can just enjoy the scene in all of its terrifying glory. And when you think about it too, the scene is so kind of urgent that having music as another layer in that whole mix, I think it would have it would have undermined the immediacy of the moment. It would have kind of, there would have been some distance, I think. And I think it, you really need to have that sense of urgency and like immediacy, right? I know there's no score here, but if you'll permit me, I do want to talk about this scene just for a minute because just on a filmmaking level, it's really something to appreciate. Like the scene, just this scene alone features tons of buildup, right? Like they're sitting in the cars and then you just like, just the subtlest sort of shaking, right? I think like there's some water that shakes and they, they look in the mirror the mirror starts shaking and that's how you know that the t-rex is nearby and then you just get a little peek at the t-rex head <laughs> i love that the lawyer just like immediately runs away like let's be honest we all would have done that uh, but you get the full reveal of the t-rex which is cgi and it still looks amazing like almost 30 years later I, I love how grounded the scene is like the dinosaur is just interacting with the modern world and that's actually how the tension builds it's like, you know, it's flashing the light through the windows, slamming the car door shut. The irony, of course, being that the cars were essentially a safety precaution, but as soon as something goes wrong, these cars are like a death trap now. Like the T-Rex, he's just playing with it like a cat is just like playing with a ball of yarn. But yeah, like you get this great framing the dinosaur through the window. It really gives it a good sense of perspective and like 
uh, scope. You get a real kind of human's eye perspective on this dinosaur. And he's like, he's turning the car around. He's turning it over. It's so much more terrifying than anything else that any of these Jurassic Park movies have. I mean, that's my opinion, but I don't know. I, that's why I love the scene so much. And it's also scary too, because the T-Rex is just acting on instinct. He's not a, a like a mega monster. That's the scary thing. It doesn't care that these kids are sinking into the mud under the car. It's just acting like a curious animal with a new toy. And he uses, sorry, Spielberg uses everything he can to build tension in this scene. Like, he gets so much mileage just out of the car alone. And then Dr. Grant and Lex, they have no choice, but they have to get up on the wall, right? And then they have no choice but to go down the wall. And then the T-Rex is pushing the car over the wall. Um, you know, if the first half of the movie was about awe and wonder and, you know, the warm feelings, then this scene alone kind of puts those feelings to bed very, very quickly. Okay, so that brings us uh, into the second half of the movie. And what I would call some slight shifts in the pacing and the tone. And if, if I had one complaint about the movie, and it's very minor, I'm using complaint here very loosely, it would be that the second half of the movie is not quite as strong as the first half. And I guess that makes sense because, like, how do you top that T-Rex scene? Or even the build-up to that, right? It's like the first half just has this kind of momentum to it and it just keeps getting more and more intense and then there's that huge payoff with the t-rex scene the second half of the movie this is when it starts to become a bit more uh, episodic like it's just a lot of <laughs> running away from dinosaurs uh, and it's a lot of fun and it's really exciting but again like at this point the goal is just to get off the island there aren't really these like tense philosophical debates or any mysterious or treacherous moments the way it is with Dennis Nedry and as much as that death scene rules and I'm glad that it's in the movie that's when it also like you definitely feel his absence for the rest of the movie I would say so like yeah some of the interpersonal drama some of the ethical things like, it's just it's not quite as present in the story as it was in the first half but like I said it's really fun it's really exciting if it's not as intriguing as the first half, I think that's okay. Like, it's an adventure movie. I don't know. But it also kind of reminds me of Jaws, which uh, you know, Steven Spielberg back in 1975. Uh, the first half of that movie plays a little bit more into the, like, kind of horror, thriller territory, um, just in terms of how it's constructed. But as soon as our three leads get on the boat to hunt the shark, it immediately turns into, like, a swashbuckling adventure. And the John Williams score follows suit. Uh, the music really changes there. And I think maybe that tonal shift works a little bit better in Jaws because the shark is actually like a villain in the movie. And so the movie's just building all the way up to that climax at the very end of the movie. And here it's different because appropriately the dinosaurs are painted more so just as like animals just acting the way they would in their environments. They're not painted as antagonists. Um, but the music does shift here too. It's like we don't get so much in the way of thematic material the way we did in the first half. Like there's no uh, there's no sweeping, towering hymns. There's no adventurous fanfares. It's a lot of action music, kind of haunting moments that like I would say the raptor stuff kind of plays in more of like a thriller way. Right. So the music kind of reflects that.
So it's really good music, especially coming from John Williams. It's so effective. But thematically, like it doesn't quite latch on the way those earlier themes do. We've talked about this a little bit, but John Williams' action music, it's not really melody-based in the same way that uh, his uh, thematic material is. It's, uh, it's much more fragmented. It's a lot of really short riffs. Like the brass and the woodwinds, they always kind of interact with each other. The brass has a like really punchy statement, and then the woodwinds have this like kind of like rising sound to it. Uh, and then the strings are usually like motor, right? They, they're just the, the pulse underneath. Despite the fact that the, the action music doesn't quite latch on as strongly as the thematic material from earlier, I think it works really well at this point because it's all about uh, like underscoring the what's happening in the story at that moment, right? And it kind of leads you from one thing to the next. There's a logic to it. Uh, a really good example of when his music like it doesn't quite know what to do is in another Spielberg movie, Minority Report, where like the first half of that movie is. I'd love it. It's so cool. It's a it's a like neo noir sci fi thriller. It's it's really moody. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I think because it's a big budget movie and they're banking on Tom Cruise as the lead, for no reason they have this like fifteen minute chase fight scene and that John Williams is scoring it with his with his action music. But it feels so kind of inert because I don't think John Williams knows where to go with the music. It's like this fight scene is so unnecessary and it doesn't add anything. It just slows the movie down. And so you can tell that he, he just like keeps kind of hitting the same musical beats over and over and over and it, it doesn't feel like it's building to anything. And that's definitely the weakest part of that movie, Minority Report. Here in Jurassic Park, it actually works really well because yeah, he's, he's outlining the, 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 the story beats. He's his music is taking you from point A to point B, even if it's not, you know, latching on in a similar way as the thematic material. But there are a couple of moments in the score in the back half that really stick out to me because they're really unique and uh, kind of subtle too. So I, I just want to draw some attention to that. So the first bright spot that I notice. Uh, is the music that plays when John Hammond is talking about uh, Petticoat Lane, his uh, his <laughs> little flea circus. The music is, uh, it's kind of sad, it's sweet, but it's also just a hint sinister. Like it has kind of a, almost like a circus sound. It's just the, like these little uh, notes that just kind of bend just a little bit in one direction or the other and gives it just that little bit of sinister uh, moodiness. 
but it's a really nice musical reflection of John Hammond. Uh, after all the crap that's transpired, he's still fixated on this idea that he can get it right. Like he's so blinded by his childlike desires that he can't even register that like there's a serious ethical dilemma here. And the music conveys that he's so out of touch with reality that it actually becomes ominous, right? It's just a great scene, and it's vital to have these kind of slower, more thoughtful moments. The T-Rex scene is so intense that the rest of the movie kind of kicks up the adrenaline in response to that. So it's nice to have a few minutes to just reflect on what's transpired. And uh, it's uh, John Hammond, Dr. Sattler, they're, just, they're both just chowing down on ice cream. Like, it's kind of a sweet moment. It is. Um, and then the second bright spot that... I shouldn't call it a bright spot. It's, it's more just, again... A musical moment that sticks out to me and I just happen to this one actually is a bright spot I think this is my favorite musical cue in the whole movie I love 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 this uh, so uh, Dr. Grant is in the trees with uh, Timmy and Lex they're taking uh, refuge in the trees and they're sleeping and the Brachiosaurus comes up and it's like it's like kind of a cheesy moment but that's okay again like if ever there was a moment for cheesy dinosaur stuff <laughs> I think this is it it's fine but the music here is like really beautiful. It's, it's so lush compared to the brassiness and or like the playfulness of the rest of the score. This one is playful too, but in like almost like a very alien way. The harmony is considerably more dense. It feels a little bit unbalanced and unpredictable, but it moves so smoothly and it just has this like freewheeling motion. It's so enjoyable to listen to. It reminds me of like, um, it, it's very romantic, like the kind of music that you would hear a romantic era composer create it, it just it has that very like fantastical sound to it uh, which I think kind of makes up for some of the the cheesier elements of that scene but like ah, that's such a sweet and fun little scene though it's not a big deal also that dinosaur is not <laughs> is disgusting uh, but then we get to the third uh, third musical moment that really stands out to me and this is when uh, dr. Grant uh, he stumbles upon the hatched baby raptor eggs out in the park right this uh, is a very special moment i love it because john williams he hits like it's like four different tonal beats in a very small amount of time and he does it so seamlessly you almost don't even notice it so first dr grant he holds up the raptor eggs that they stumble past and they're hatched uh, and it, we're getting the reprise of that music that we heard earlier in the lab Then it becomes a little bit more sinister as he's realizing the implications of this, that there are going to be raptors running around in the same space that they're trying to escape. Uh, and just really kind of the larger uh, implications that life did in fact find a way. So that the music is a little more ominous there.
And then the third tonal beat, this is a really quick moment. Uh, we get wonder and awe again as we the, the camera shows those little baby raptor footprints. They're adorable, right? Uh, but it's a very bright sound uh, and to get like kind of musical nerd about it it's a scale called the lydian mode it's a very bright major scale uh, but it's perfect for these kinds of moments uh, so that's it happens in like a second and then the third uh, sorry that was the second tonal oh my god there's like five here <laughs> Yeah, okay, so the first one is the egg hatching theme, and then it turns sinister. That's the second one. Third one is like, oh, isn't it adorable that the little raptors are running around? And then a very quick, uh, the fourth one, we get this kind of ominous sound, this little descending kind of tinkly sound. And Dr. Grant, he's like almost giddy about what he's seeing. He says, life found a way. And then the last, the fifth beat is a major chord resolution. That like just right at the end of the scene. It's almost reinforcing in like kind of a strangely positive way that life did in fact find a way. So, uh, like, hitting all of those beats within the span of literally one minute, and he's doing it in a way where you barely notice it, like, that, that is what people mean when they say John Williams is a genius. And it's, I think he does it really well because it's moments like this where you can just hold on a chord, like, really sustain this kind of low-key sound, and then there's an important beat in, in the movie, and then he has just enough time to respond with, like, this little flourish. Uh, whether it's wonder and awe, ominous, whatever, uh, like it's just enough time for a little flourish. And then he can go back to the like low key chord sustains. I think maybe that's kind of how he determines these tonal moments. Uh, it's really nice. I like it a lot. Um, and then just a little note here too. I like how John Williams does the rising strings effect, which I mean, you hear that sound effect all the time. Uh, but he, this happens, it's a very quick moment uh, where Dr. Sattler, uh, they discover that the raptor fe fence is broken. It's very subtle, but the strings, they actually have a target note. It doesn't go too high. It's just like they have a destination and they all land on this really sinister sounding chord. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's effective without drawing your attention or coming off as cheesy. And uh, I did, I, just a couple moments I want to point out. The, the raptor kitchen scene. Uh, these raptors are so cool, and I love the kitchen scene. It's pretty terrifying. Not as strong, I think, as the T-Rex scene, but it really gives a good jolt of energy back into the, the second half of the movie. I think it's nice, again, that the dinosaurs, they actually have to interact with the human environment, and that, like, the humans kind of use that to their advantage. Um, but, yeah, like, this scene and the T-Rex scene really reinforce the idea that we were never meant to coexist. Um... So the last kind of musical moment that I want to bring up, this one kind of stuck out to me because I, I don't know, it, just, it felt like it was, it came out of nowhere, like it was almost inappropriately used. 
So we get to the finale of the movie um, where they're back in kind of the main building and uh, you know, they're surrounded by the raptors. It, it, it's tense. Again, it's like a lot of really big action music. It's really exciting. And like they, you think that like they ha they're trapped, they have no way out. <laughs> and then like, I don't know where the T-Rex comes in and he starts chowing down on the raptors. But like, first of all, where did the T-Rex, did he come through the front door? Like, <laughs> how did he get in there? Uh, it's fine. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but it's also really weird because out of nowhere, that adventure theme kicks back in. Like, it's just kind of a whiplash for me. Like, the T-Rex, he's not a character making a decision to actively save them, right? But the music kind of suggests that that's what it is. I, this is so nitpicky, I know, but... It's just something that, again, it just stuck out to me in the score. Like, again, the T-Rex is just acting on instinct, but he's getting, like, this heroic music. Right? I, I don't know. It's, it's just weird. But at the same time, I can sympathize with that decision because it's the climax of the movie, and, like, I don't know, what are you going to do, not have music? Eh, bit of a rock and a hard place situation, I guess. I'm not gonna be the one who's gonna like tell John Williams what he should and shouldn't do. It's just I don't know. It's just it was a little odd to hear that. So, um, so anyway, you know they 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 escape the island. We're back in the helicopter. We get that lovely reverential music again, but it's super. I, th I think it might be on a piano or celeste, but it's just it's very sweet. And then we get a reprise of the wonder and awe theme, which uh, it, it's a nice summation of how you're supposed to feel about the movie i will say that i think spielberg movies and I, I know it's not just me saying this but they do have kind of a wrapping it up problem a lot of them tend to end pretty abruptly and sometimes it works out just fine like in jaws the story's over when they kill a shark you can just end it that's that's all you need but then other times it feels really rushed like in war of the worlds that's like the the big example it's just it ends out of nowhere um but I don't think this is rushed at all. Um, it just, I don't know. It just, it gets very sweet and, and like kind of sappy at the end. Um, I don't know. You can't really complain. This movie's so much fun and it's such a, just like well-made movie. Eh, who cares? But I, I do really like how kind of melancholy that music is when John Hammond, he takes one last look at his bizarre, insane dream. Um, and it, it's nice to end it on kind of a low key. Just it's, it's like the story is actually coming to a conclusion, right? It's nice when movies do that and they're not constantly setting you up for like 10 different sequels. I, ironically, of course, this movie is now just a big franchise. But uh, yeah, it, it's a nice way to end that story. So, so that's a wrap, I guess. Um, it's been really interesting for me to, to talk through all of this because before I went into this, uh, I, I wouldn't say I'd like, I was just kind of lukewarm on John Williams, I think. Like uh, his music doesn't hold a lot of personal, uh, it's, it, it's like a good example would be obviously Howard Shore with the Lord of the Rings. That music has so much sort of personal weight for me and I it's actually kind of nice for me to get a more objective 
look at John Williams. Uh, I, he's a brilliant composer, but I, I will admit, before I did this, I just thought that maybe, just maybe a touch overrated. I know, I know. But after doing all my research for this and recording this, I like he's not my favorite composer. I don't have a deep personal connection to this particular score, but as far as mainstream film composers go, this I think I admire him the most. Uh, like his attention to detail, both in, in the actual music and also in being able, like his film literacy. He really understands how somebody needs to respond to the movie. And he's so good at constructing his score in response to the movie. And all of his transitional music too, like it, like I was talking about earlier, like it really helps move the pace of the movie along. Uh, so you, 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 I don't think there are any like slow, boring moments where you just like kind of start to check out a little bit, right? A lot of movies nowadays, they have that effect where like, I feel like every five or 10 minutes, I'm always like looking at my phone or something. And this one, like it, it really sucks you in. And, and I, I think it's part of that is Steven Spielberg, of course, and part of it is John Williams and his score. I, this really is an almost perfect score. There's so much weight to carry. That's a big responsibility. Uh, like the fact that he not only achieved that, but gave us these melodies and themes that are just so unforgettable. It really stays with you for a long time after you see it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's not much more to say about this movie. I think we've covered it. Uh, John Williams is a genius, uh, and he's wonderful for these kind of mainstream, big, big, big productions. Um, and I hope that at some point in the near, because a lot of big budget movies nowadays, their scores, like I think this is a studio thing where it, they don't want scores to be noticed in movies. I think that it seems like a lot of musical scores are losing their their uniqueness they're they're losing a lot of interesting orchestration i think we're going towards a very sort of homogenous sound um again because i don't know do, do studios think that movies are going to be cheesy if if you have like the john williams like it's so sincere right i don't know there's such detachment in big movies nowadays that I, i'm afraid that people would think that like it'd be too corny to have that kind of music in a movie uh, like a big action movie, but I don't know. I, I you watch Jurassic Park, it still holds up. It like all of those important beats still hit so well, and the music is never distracting or anything. So I don't know. I, hopefully, we'll we'll turn a corner with modern film scoring and uh, a lot of lessons that we can learn from from John Williams on that. But anyway, uh, that wraps up uh, this discussion for today. So. Uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in, and um, this is my first podcast ever, so I guess uh, I should tell you, if you like what you heard, go ahead and uh, subscribe, uh, give it a five-star rating, highest rating, whatever you can on any of the platforms that you found this. Uh, I'd really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, so uh, be sure to tune in next time. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. All right, take care, guys.